from Providence School. Weren't that great? Wasn't that, wasn't that fantastic? Yeah, I, I, I thought so too. Just what a great job they did. Um, Isaiah 43, just a, a touch of background to help you understand what's going on here. Israel had been taken into captivity. Right? That's the scene. Israel, the northern tribe, southern tribes, Judah. And Judah will be taken into captivity by Babylon into the, what we call the exile. And God's word to those who are exiled and scattered hundreds of miles from their home is this. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you out by name. You are mine. His comfort to them is, yes, you are exiled, or you will be, because this is prophetic, you will be exiled from your home. Yes, you will go through the fire, but you are mine, and I will redeem you. I've called you to be my people, and I'll forgive you. And God is saying that my calling, you, provides a story, the entire story of your life, so that for the believer in this room, all of our experiences are not just a jumble of happenings that signify nothing and chaos, but we have a sense of continuity that everybody he calls The story is he is working all things, even when we go through the fire, for our redemption and for his glory. So let's just read Isaiah 43. We're going to read, we're going to bounce around and cover different parts, but I'm going to read 1 through 7. And I'm reading from the English Standard Bible this morning. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Please pray with me. Oh God, you are the redeemer of your elect people, according to the scriptures. Those you have called to yourself. Father, and there is a message in the world and in the church that says if we are redeemed by Christ, we shall not suffer anything in the world. And God, so many of us here today have suffering, have gone through various forms of trial and fire and water, and we wonder, am I really redeemed? Why is this happening to me? Oh God, and I just praise you for the promise here for your people that you are with us 
when we suffer, when we go through hard times. Lord, we praise You and we need to hear from Your Word and Your Spirit. So God, we ask, give us ears to hear from You now. The most drowsy of people, wake us up. Give eyes to see Your greatness and want to worship. Let our hearts be warmed. Warmed by Your presence and Your love and Your grace when we leave here today. Let your name be glorified and seen as great. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pride stands against grace and against glory. You need to get that. Pride stands against grace and against glory in two great ways. First, pride stands against grace. The gospel threatens our pride by telling us you have failed in pleasing God in your own efforts and are wholly dependent upon His grace and His mercy to be saved. It's it's all Him doing it for us. We deserve nothing. In fact, somebody said the only thing that we give for our salvation is our sin. Pride stands against glory. Pride wants others to see my greatness so that I might be admired, I might be praised, I might be seen as great. And the Gospel says God does all things, including your salvation, to show His greatness. And He calls us to Himself into that same task. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we're to do, play soccer, go to be in productions to the glory of God. Not my own. So for someone to become a believer, they must first really be humbled. There was a small girl who, it was her first day to get on the bus, and her parents walk her down. She's in kindergarten. There she stands. She's excited. She's got her new little pink backpack on, strawberry shortcake. That was the backpack in my day. Not today, right? And the bus pulls up. Mr. Dumas is the bus driver. He opens the doors. And she sees the first step is about right here for her. Right here for her. She can't get on. So Mr. Dumas comes down and he says, hey, let me help you. And he reaches down. You know what she says? No! I can do this! And she scrambles her way up. Her pride refused to admit that she needed anything, especially in front of the children. She didn't want to look like a failure, right? Pride wants to stand, let me say it like this, pride stands against God's grace and His glory very much like that. No, I can do this. I will do this. I have done this. And when I do it, people will see my greatness. In Isaiah 43, God tells His people all the ways that He will redeem them from their exile. Through His presence, they will pass through fiery trials, yet they will not be overwhelmed. Even though they have not sought His forgiveness, He's going to forgive them. And He will do all this not because they deserve it. All of this is completely and totally by His grace. 
for His glory. And he ends the whole chapter as a judge in a courtroom after giving his verdict of forgiveness to his people by grace. And they are not wanting to receive God's grace, but rather standing before him wanting to show all the ways that they have earned his forgiveness. I've done this. I've done this. Their pride stands against grace and his glory. Now, the greater the distance between a man or woman's life and their pride and God, the more the person's pride will be repulsed by God saying He does everything for His own glory. In other words, it's hard for us when we read the Scriptures to hear God does everything for His glory. Why? Well, because like Isaiah 42 describes that man without Christ, we are imprisoned in spiritual darkness. We don't know God apart from His grace. So we can imagine God to be like ourselves, don't we? He is kind of like another man, just bigger, stronger. Therefore, just like it is selfish for people to do something for our own glory, So it seems to be wrong then that God would say He does everything for His glory. If it's wrong for me, it's wrong for Him. And that makes sense if God was like man, flawed and imperfect. So if that is how you feel when you hear God does everything for His own glory, including your salvation, and you are to do everything to show His glory then you have in many ways imagined God to be like man. Imperfect, small, not so great. But my friends, the truth is, the most loving thing that God can do for those He redeems and calls to Himself by grace is to do all things for His own glory. And if He didn't, He would be sinful and not God and not loving you. Now you say, Rusty, I don't get that at all. And we're going to try to explain that. So let me explain that. Here's the question. What will God do for his redeemed? What will God do for his people? That's you. You're the redeemed. If you're a believer. First, he will restore his people. Look in your Bibles at verse 6 and 7 with me. Verse 6 and 7. He will restore his people. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the world. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my own glory, whom I formed and made. Do you see those words there? Created, formed, made. Do you see those? When God made the world in Genesis 1, these three words are what he's using there. And now God is using the exact same words to say, in the same way He created, He formed, He made the world from nothing. Ex nihilo. From nothing He did it. His redemption of mankind and of His people will create a new thing. Will form it, shaping us, and will perfect it, which is what it is in the Latin. He will perfect it, which means He'll finish this work in His people. So, so God's taking the language of creation and saying, in the same way I created things for my glory from nothing, so my people, it's the same. 
I created, I formed, I made you. Now, how will he create, form, make a nation out of people who have been captured and they've been led far, far, far away? Verse 6 in your Bibles. Verse 6. I will say to the north, give up to the south. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now look, God's promise is verse 1. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. Which means when God made a covenant with his people, they were called by his name. They are now part of his family. His people. His authority is upon them. And he has promised to redeem them and to keep them. And so he will deliver them from all corners of the exile. He will speak his decrees and they will come. Now, this is exactly what happened. If, if you know the story, Judah, the southern tribe that he's writing to, was taken captive about 600 B.C. by Babylon. In 538, King Cyrus released them and they came from north, south, east, west, back. And that's prophetically what he's describing will happen here. And I would say that is a shadow of the gospel. Let me read to you Revelations 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, every tongue, people, and nation. The suffering servant Christ was slain, and by his blood, people from every nation will be called and redeemed. And this first return that's happening here is a shadow of what God will do for the world. He will create, he will form, he will make a people and draw them from all the corners to himself. And that is the church, isn't it? And that's us. And we're part of that. So what will God do for His redeemed covenant people? First, He will restore them. Here's second. He will protect them on their road home. Verse 2 with me in your Bibles. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. So to come home the Jews had between a 400 and 800 mile walk over about a four month period after being released to go to Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? That's like walking from here or Birmingham to Indianapolis in a four month period through people that you've been at war with for years and who hate you, despise you, and don't want you to make it back. And notice God's grace on that scary trip home. Notice what he says. When you pass through the waters, when you walk through the fires, and I take that literally, and I think what that literally means is they're going to be crossing big rivers along the way. They're going to be going through areas maybe that were flooded. They were going to be going through fields where farmers were burning their fields. Or they were going through areas that people didn't want them to go, so they would have set them ablaze with fire. They were going to face major challenges and persecution on their way home. 
So his promise is not comfort. You will come to the rivers. You will go through them. Do you see that? God's not saying, I'm going to deliver you and make this a comfortable trip. His promise is not merely comfort or ease for His redeemed. They're going to go through difficulties and hardship. But what's the promise? I will be with you. These hardships will not overwhelm you. You will not be burned. The flame will not consume you. He's saying the same thing in different ways, my friends. Not overwhelmed by the water. Not consumed by fire. Because I am with you. You will persevere in your trials and in your suffering. Now, so much of what you see and hear about Christianity is just the opposite message, isn't it? It it says... Redemption means comfort in this life. So often the church is like a salesman of grace and comfort rather than a proclaimer of the gospel. But redemption means from the effects and the power of sin in this life. Of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Redeemed from alienation from God to being a child of God. Redeemed from being eternally facing God's wrath to eternally receiving God's pleasure. Both Christian and non-Christian experience terrible rainstorms, thunderstorms in our lives. But we're going in different directions. Often the non-believer rides into the storm and the further they go, the worse it gets. And they see no hope. And the storm does not bring any benefit but just pain upon pain in their life. There is no promise of redemption in the storm, in the trial, in the challenge. But the believer has Christ with us. And that though we may get wet, though we may be severely tossed around, in God's strength we are able to ride from under the storm through it. More Christ-like is the promise that He will use it to transform us. And redeem us from it. Let me tell you a story I think will help make sense of that. One of my heroes is a man named William Cooper. Or William Cowper is how you might know him. He wrote a lot of the hymns that we sing. And in 1731, he was born. He was one of England's greatest poets. Six years later, when he was six, his mother died. He was sent away to boarding school. To later go on to study law problem was he hated law. That was the last thing he wanted to do. His life was full of tragedy and despair. The woman he loved broke off their engagement. When he was quite young, his father died. And so in 1752, at the age of 21, he sank into the deepest and darkest of depressions. You might say William Cooper went into the worst of storms. For four major episodes he had of depression... He tried to commit suicide multiple times and eventually his family placed him in an insane asylum. And this is how he described his time there. Day and night, I was on the rack. Literally, he was strapped to a rack. Lying down in horror, rising up in despair, I lost all desire for study and needed something more than amusement but at present had no one to direct me where to find it. 
He's saying, I was in the worst of pain. I had no satisfaction. My heart was miserable. And then someone shared the gospel with him, the good news of Christ, and he was radically born again. And his life radically changed. Now, catch this. His situation didn't. He still struggled with deep depression. His whole life he battled darkness. God never removed it fully. Yet God was with him in the midst of the worst of his depressions. He meditated on truth. He spent hours in prayer. God sent a faithful brother by the name of John Newton who who wrote Amazing Grace that we sing to day by day by day minister to Cooper. And he persevered through it. He came out of that storm of despair even though he still struggled with depression. And he wrote things like this. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. You see, if you believe the modern lie that Christians are redeemed from all suffering, and that when I suffer, it's because I've done something that displeased God, or maybe I haven't done enough religious things to please God, then you will spend your whole life in exodus running away from God. But if you know God has called you to Himself, He's redeemed you from the slavery of darkness and sin, and when you pass through the waters in this life and the challenges, He will be with you and you will not be overcome. They will not be victorious then in those waters and fires of life, you will run to Him, not away from Him. And He will grow you in Christ's likeness and use the greatest challenges in your life to shape you and to change you and to bring Himself glory. Let's go to the third thing. How will God redeem His people? Point three, and we'll close here. He will forgive them by grace. Look in your Bible at verse 22 to 26. He will forgive them by grace. Verse 22 to 26. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me, brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Seven times God used the negative here. Seven times. Not. So while they were in exile, they did not call upon God. They did not pray. They did not make any kind of sacrifices for their sin. Verse 24, all they did do was burden God with their sin. Yet he gives a final knot. He gives a final knot. Look at this. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Here's the climax of the whole chapter. God's grace to his redeemed. He will not remember their sins. He will blot them out even though they have done nothing to deserve it. And look at their pride, verse 26. God sees the pride of their people. And as a judge in a courtroom, 26 ends 
And he says, I have found you guilty of sin, yet I have chosen to show you grace. So put me in remembrance, he says. It means pretend that or present to me all the ways and reasons you are not sinful and don't need my forgiveness and don't need my grace. Prove yourself right before me. And God's point is man's pride is so great that it rejects grace because it does not believe it's needed. So God says, I will forgive you even though you don't deserve it. And there they stand before him saying, oh, we do deserve it. Now what does God do for his redeemed? He restores them, he keeps them in trials, he forgives them. And last thing we want to close, why does he do this? And he tells us, verse 7 and verse 25, look in your Bibles and we'll finish here. Everyone is called by my name who I created for my glory. Verse 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give you Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian. I'm going to try to put it in simple terms. I'm going to try to go slow. But nobody explains it like he does. God is saying, I have created you and I have formed you. I have kept you. I've redeemed you. I've called you. I've forgiven you. And I've done all this in the gospel for my glory. To show my greatness. Which means, friends, if you're a believer... If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, first, you are saved for God's glory and for His greatness. And that's the reason God does everything. Romans 11.36, For from Him and to Him and through Him are all things to Him be the glory, Paul says. Now, that is not selfish, but it's the most loving thing that God can do. Okay? Why? Because if I did that... (laughs) And you came to my house for a great meal, and I said, eat to the glory of me. I made what you're eating. Sit on this chair that I made to the glory of me. You would say, what a pompous jerk. We're out of here. So why is it right for God to say that? And we all know it's absolutely wrong when I do, and you do. Why? Well, one, God's perfect, but also God's glory is a promise for joy and good for you. you got to see that. For God to say His chief end is His glory is to say He is committed to show His perfections, which always produces an effect. Catch that. When God says, I'm going to show my glory and I do all things to reveal my greatness, it has an effect for you. When God says, I will be glorified, His people receive the effects of that. His glory is not an idea that lies dormant on a page in the Bible. But like sunlight on a tree, it has an effect on the believer's life. There is one great effect of experiencing the glory of God through word, through spirit, through sacrament. And that is joy to you in life transformation. So your joy and your happiness as His people, redeemed by Christ, is an overflow of God showing you His glory. So when God says, I will reveal and show my glory, there is nothing better for the believer because we get the effect of it. 
which is joy and life transformation. And God would not be loving if he did not share himself with his people. Let me explain that. My favorite pizza place is Pizzeria Uno in Chicago. Anybody ever eaten there? One person loves it too. You need to go. And let's just say I'm at home, my kids come home from school, and I've got two huge everything without anchovies, deep dish pizza from Pizzeria Uno. And my daughter comes up and she smells something and she says, boy, doesn't that smell good? What's going on here? And what if I said, well, I've got two 18-inch Pizzeria Unos, but you can't have any. It's all for me. Aren't I a good dad? Aren't I a great father? No, of course not. You would say you're selfish because you're not sharing what you have with those you love. But what if I said, oh, children, look, here's a slice for you and a slice for you and a slice for you, and they dove into it and they ate it and they said, this is the most amazing thing. You are the most amazing dead ever, (laughs) which they say every day, of course, anyway. You see, they are experiencing the glory of my love. I get the glory because they see what a father I am, and they get the joy of the Pizzeria Uno. And do you know what the response is? They worship. In one sense, they say, Wow, this is great. This is awesome. You're a great dad. God's glory, let me finish this up. I could go on forever about this. God's glory is internal and external. Let's wrap it up. I'm going to put a bow on it. God's glory is internal and external. The internal glory is the fullness of God. It's who He is. He is infinitely knowledgeable. He knows all things. He's infinitely holy. His attributes are full, that means. And He's infinitely joyful. That's His internal glory. That's who He is. His external glory is the fact that He communicates all of that with us, with you, primarily through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through His Word, through His Spirit. Now, if God kept His glory to Himself, He would be selfish like a selfish father refusing to share what's good for His own children. Do you see that? Please give me a head nod, because I can give all this to you again. Unloving to His people, Because He is keeping good from them. For God to love us as His children, He must be committed to giving us what is best for us, which is Himself. Which means He's got to be committed to His own glory. So the most loving thing God can do for us is let nothing prevent the communication of His glory to us. Which is why He sent Christ. To destroy the power of sin which has blinded every man in this world, every woman, from seeing and knowing the glory of Christ. And the cross took an absolute hammer to that. To bring us out of darkness. To what? Behold His glory again. It's why He gives you the Holy Spirit. So you can know His glory. And His Word. And the sacrament. So that you can draw close to Him, His greatness and His glory. And lastly, it's why He hates sin in our life. Why He gives us law. Why He tells us to live a holy life. Because as we do that, it's when we draw close to glory. We become more and more like Him.
So I'll just say it again. The most loving thing God can do in the Scriptures for you is to say, I do all things for my glory. And it's right because he's perfect to do that. And it would be sinful and wrong, and he would be not God if he didn't. Father, I just praise you and I worship you, and I know that was a fire hose, Lord. But, God, I thank you and we worship you that you do do all things for your glory. And you're not man, and you're, you're holy and you're right, and it would be selfish of you to keep your glory to yourself. But praise you like the sun which beams down and gives goodness to our earth and reveals the glory of the fire above. So, God, you beam down in the person and the work of Jesus Christ so that we might know your glory, which sin has blinded us from. And you give us your Holy Spirit. We are born again to glory, to know you relationally. You give us eyes to see, ears to hear. God, I praise you. And we look forward to a day when we will be with you and what we experience for all eternity is knowing your infinite knowledge, your infinite holiness, and your infinite joy, God. And we praise you. That's our calling. And thank you, Lord. In this life, we go through, all of us go through fires. We go through lakes. We go through trials. But we will not be overcome because you are with us. And you will use those things for your glory and to transform us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Can I have the elders to come up? Well, I'm glad I could do that.